Well, brothers and sisters, uh, like I mentioned during the announcements, today we have a guest preacher uh, for us. His name is Rob Smith, and I've enjoyed uh, a friendship with Rob, which I think tallies up to eight years now. I think so, yeah. It's it's been a while. Um, So, as many of you are aware, uh, my father is transgendered, and so when I started actually kind of navigating through that, I found in, uh, in Rob a fellow traveller who was also kind of navigating the gender scene and basically tackling uh, trans ideology. And so that's what really put us, I think, in contact with each other yeah, at that yeah. point. And um, yes, no, I, from my understanding, I could be wrong, I also believe Rob is a Sydney Anglican minister. I think he's also possibly the first Sydney Anglican minister to preach from this pulpit. I could be wrong. But so, and I think that's just committed to the, the form of Reformed Catholicity that we hold as a church. We recognise that we are an unashamed Baptist church, but we also hold that our brethren of different traditions, whether they're Presbyterian or Anglicans, are also our fellow brethren in Christ. And so I just want to ask a few things for you, Rob. Yeah, All right. Away. All right, so Rob, you just... Uh, you just finalised and completed your PhD last year, Mm -hmm. and what was that in, and where was that from? Well, it was done through the Presbyterian College uh, at Burwood, Christ College, Uh, and as you've already alluded, it was on the whole transgender phenomenon, um, looking at the relationship of our bodies to our identity and how significant it is uh, that we are made embodied and made sexed creatures and what that tells us about who we are. Yeah. And you're married to also a fairly well-known uh, person, uh, Claire. Well-known to me, yep. uh, but she's well-known to many as well. Claire is my wife, who's uh, a speaker and author. And, yep. yeah. So that's Claire Smith, who's written on uh, God's Good Design, which is a great uh, primer on complementarianism. So if any of you have come across that brilliant book. Uh, do you have any children? Rob? We have a son who uh, lives in Edinburgh in Scotland uh, with his wife and their dog. Um, and we were, well, we were there in April visiting them for a couple of weeks, and um, it's a little hard being on the other side of the world from them, but uh, we do get to see them at least once a year. That's fair enough. And now, Rob, outside of writing on gender, you're also fairly well-known for in another way. Um, so he's, uh, Rob's written a book called Let Us Sing, which is a great book on, on uh, congregational worship. And what else... Uh, in that kind of space. Well, yeah, I, I co-wrote a book with Mike Rater some years ago um, called Songs of the Saints, and then, yes, Come Let Us Sing was, came out... Come Let Us Sing came out in the middle of COVID. How about that? Uh, when we couldn't sing. It was uh, the worst time book release ever, but, um, <laughs> but never mind. It, uh, it's still selling away. Uh, but, yes, I've written a lot of songs as well as talked about singing and written about singing, um, and uh, I've been a musician, I guess, almost all of my life, so, yeah. yeah. And you, you're uh, on staff at SNBC? Yes, I've been part-time at SNBC. For, well, I was part-time there for 20 years, and then a couple of years ago, uh, the principal said, is there any reason why you haven't uh, ever talked here full-time? And I said, just no one's ever asked. And he said, oh, can I ask? And I said, sure, go ask away. And so, anyway, I'm now there full-time. And what, what um, do you teach? I teach uh, theology and ethics and occasionally music ministry. And I'm the head of Christian thought, which uh, covers, again, church history and those other areas too. So. Great. Mm. Well, I'll leave it there, and we look forward to being in your hands as you preach the Word of God. Thank you. Now, do I need oh. to activate that somehow? Uh, yes, I do think so. I, I, thought I may need to ask this. Uh, Anthony may need your uh, technical assistance.
When it comes to iPads, I'm useless. Uh. Ditto, ditto. But we are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 18 through to chapter 2, verse 5. So I'd encourage you to have that passage open. And there will be some slides that uh, will come up on the screen. And I should be able to control them from here if the iPad comes back to life. But we'll, we'll hold tight. You can at least see this sort of intro slide. Let me pray once again, just ask that the Lord will speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, thanks for this gathering this morning. Thank you for the privilege of, uh, of uh, teaching your word. I pray that you would uh, uh, speak through me and speak to us all and that your word would bear fruit in our lives to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard the, the memes out there that there are you know, two kinds of people in this world, you know, those who thought and never did and those who did and never thought, uh, there's one option, uh, uh, or those who uh, think they do all the work and those who actually do all the work, there's, there's two kinds of people right there. Uh, the famous one by Robert Benchley, uh, I think, was that there are two kinds of people in this world, those who think there are two kinds of people in this world and those who don't. But the one I'm uh, conscious of this morning as we come into this uh, theme of the power and wisdom of the cross of Christ is this, uh, this particular version that says there are two kinds of people in the world, uh, those who move in ideas and those who move things. Right? Those who trade in thinking, as it were, and those whose business is actually shifting stuff. Uh, and, well, there's something in this uh, thing, as there are in all of these kinds of memes, isn't there? Because uh, our world is rather obsessed with two things, the acquisition of wisdom on the one hand, and then the accrual of strength on the other hand. And if you stop and think about it for just a moment, it makes sense. We need both wisdom and power just to live in this world, don't we? To, to, to navigate this world, to well, do the kinds of things we do. And of course, in God's great kindness, he's given us lots of wisdom. Lots of power. He's enabled us to understand much about this world. He's enabled us to accomplish much in this world. And if you stop and think about it once again, it's actually not, nothing short of breathtaking what we human beings can do. You know, we can perform heart transplants. Well, some of us can. Don't ask me. Uh, you know, space travel. Uh, the smartphones, you know, these things that we just take for granted now, you know, 30 years ago. Nobody would have imagined we could do what we can do now with our smartphones. You know, the mapping of the human genome, I could just go on. All these incredible powers that God has given to humanity and the things he's enabled us to accomplish. Remarkable wisdom, remarkable strength. But of course it's very easy for us, dangerously easy for us, to mistake technological progress with moral progress. <laughs> They're two very different things. To mistake intellectual capacity with spiritual capacity, not the same. All of which uh, spotlights for us, I think, how easily we can fall prey to what, uh, from the Bible's point of view, is the fundamental human sin. What C.S. Lewis once called the essential vice, the utmost evil. What am I talking about? I'm talking about pride. Pride, pride, which has been helpfully defined as false self-confidence arising from fallen self-centeredness. Not a bad 
and memorable definition, right? False self-confidence arising from fallen self-centeredness. And so it's pride that leads us to boast in ourselves rather than in God and all he's given to us and all he's enabled us to be and do. It's pride that causes us to look down on others as if somehow we are inherently superior or better than others. And of course it's pride that blinds us to our spiritual bankruptcy and to the fact that we actually have no ability to save ourselves from God's righteous wrath. That's why scripture tells us, does it not, that God opposes the proud. But of course he's done more than that. He's chosen to save us in a way that both confronts and confounds our pride. And so it's not surprising then that the gospel, as it were, runs headlong into human boasting. It's the enemy, the opposite of human boasting. It's why the wisdom and power of God is utterly antithetical to the wisdom and power of the world. Two very different things. All right, well, look, I raise these matters because they're precisely the matters raised in the passage that uh, Brett read earlier that you have in front of you from 1 Corinthians. And we're just going to look at this section from chapter 118 to 2 verse 5. And as the Apostle Paul unpacks uh, his thought, he does so in three steps. I'll give you my three headings up on the screen here, if I can make the... There we go. Uh, The first, you'll see there in verses uh, 18 uh, to 25, is the word that divides the world. So we'll stop and we'll think about that and unpack that for a time. And then we'll move on to look at the wisdom of God's electing grace. And then thirdly, we'll tease out some of the implications uh, for... Christian faith and for Christian ministry. Okay, so that's that's the plan and the way we're going to come at this text. So let's uh, go back to verse 18, where Paul introduces us to this word that divides the world. Have a look at it with me. He says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. That's a good memory verse for the week if you are into memory verses. Right? The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Now what's the apostle stating here? He's saying something that, well, I suspect many of us have experienced firsthand. <laughs> and that's the fact that non-Christian people, by and large, don't get the cross of Jesus. They really don't. It makes no sense to them. In fact, it often appears stupid to them. Indeed, it's often quite offensive to them. For instance, uh, if you know Richard Dawkins' uh, famous or perhaps infamous book, The God Delusion, uh, he there describes the Christian doctrine of the atonement, right? the idea that it's the blood of Jesus that saves us from our sins. He describes that as vicious, sadomasochistic and repellent And then goes on to say that we should also dismiss it as barking mad. Claiming that if God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them? Now, I've almost uh, almost had exactly those words said to me by someone who I don't think had actually read the book. But an atheist friend who some years ago I took along to the town hall to uh, hear John Lennox uh, give a presentation. 
And uh, he was actually quite impressed with Lennox and said to me later that he thought his arguments for God's existence had some plausibility and had shifted him a little uh, in terms of his uh, confidence in his atheism. But when it came to Jesus' death, the atonement, the fact that sinners are saved by the blood of Christ, he said that was the most idiotic thing he's ever heard in his life. And so there is the word that divides the world, that which means everything to us who have come to know Jesus is deemed to be totally crazy by those who are perishing. But if you think we had it bad, we'll come to that in a second, that picture. If you think we had it bad, they had it worse actually in the early church in the first century. Because in biblical time, New Testament times, uh, crucifixion was not only regarded as odd or something like that, or as uh, just a strange thing, but no, it's actually as a disgusting thing. It was regarded as the most degrading form of execution imaginable. It was the lot of slaves and scum and so it was offensive to Roman ears even to hear the word crooks. Now, there's an interesting piece of graffiti that was discovered uh, last century. It dates from the 2nd century AD. It's sort of anti-Christian graffiti of a very early kind. It, uh, as you might be able to see, I don't know how well you can make out the picture here, um, but you can look it up on the internet. It depicts a man with a donkey's head being crucified on a cross and then another man standing in front of him with his arm raised up in, in praise and then has the caption underneath that says, Alexamenos worships his God. And what's the point? Uh, well, the point is that worship of a crucified saviour is quite literally asinine. Uh, that's the word. It's donkey-headed. It's stupid. It makes no sense. It's for fools. Here's how Tom Holland, the historian, captures this uh, in his book Dominion. If you've heard of this book, it's a very interesting book. He writes, not as a Christian, but as a historian. He says, that a man who had been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, grotesque. The ultimate offensiveness, though, was to one particular people, Jesus' own, the Jews. No more shocking a reversal of their most devoutly held assumptions could possibly have been imagined. Not mere blasphemy, it was madness. But here's the inter interesting thing. This, this incomprehension, right? both ancient and modern, both Gentile and Jewish, it really shouldn't surprise us at all. Not if we know our Bibles, not in fact if we know our Old Testaments. For it was indeed prophesied, says Paul, Right back there in Isaiah 29, verse 14, he quotes from it, doesn't he, in our passage. Look at verse 19 of our passage where he quotes Isaiah 29, 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence 
of the intelligent. That's God's purpose. That's God's plan. That's what was prophesied eight centuries before Christ. So friends, don't be shocked when your faith is mocked. When believing in Jesus is pilloried. When your beliefs are deemed to be stupid, mindless, vacuous, idiotic. It's always been this way. Right? From the first century till now, indeed, it was prophesied that it would be this way. Why? Because it's in fact God's purpose to destroy the wisdom of the wise, to frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent. God has always been about confounding human pride, making nonsense of what we think to be sense. See, God knows how to do things best, and he has determined a way to save us that is not only effective in dealing with our sins, but confronts and confounds the very heart of our sin, which, of course, is our pride. And so as our passage goes on, that's what leads Paul to ask, where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? This is verse 20. Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. So here's the truth of it. The world, for all its apparent cleverness, is totally unable to find its way to God. Just can't do it. And for all its supposed brilliance, cannot atone for one single human sin. Can't do it. And so, of necessity, God writes the word foolish across all religious and philosophical systems of human origin. Because they are foolish. They don't work. They may be clever in a sense, but totally ineffective. Ingenious, sure, but they don't work. There's only one way for human beings to come to know the living God, only one way to find the forgiveness of our sins, and that is through faith in the doing and dying of Jesus Christ. As Paul says in verse 21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, right? the gospel of Christ crucified, to save those who believe. Okay, so this is the word that divides the world. It really is. The whole world. All people. All nations. See, look at how Paul goes on. Verse 22. For the Jews... Ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And when he focuses here on Jews and Greeks, he's not just singling out two nations, No, these are obviously significant nations, but he's doing more than that. He's highlighting two what you might call representative responses. Responses that exemplify the two main idolatries of his age and indeed every age. 
Because in both cases, it's what? It's human beings who are calling the shots, setting the standard, insisting that God dance to our tune, do things our way, either by demanding that he prove himself by some miraculous display that measures up to our idea of divine power, or by dazzling us with some display of intellectual brilliance that satisfies our criterion for divine cleverness. But either way, it's we're saying, God, you must meet our standard. God says, I don't have to do that. No, he brings a word to us that defies us. The preaching of Christ crucified, therefore, is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It cuts across all human expectations. So what are we to do then? If the world thinks our message mad, should we find another message? One that makes more sense. One that's going to get a more ready hearing. Well, that's what many people seem to think. A friend of mine who's a minister in the US who preached somewhere and, and was confronted afterwards by somebody who said, he said, I don't want to hear any more of that bloody cross religion. Sick of it. Really? It's actually all we've got. <laughs> Certainly all God's given us. There's no other message. No other word that saves. As Paul puts it in verse 24, to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so there it is. The word that saves. And therefore the word that really does divide the world. Now this brings us to our second step, or at least Paul's second step, the wisdom of God's electing grace, because he wants now the Corinthians, as he writes to them, to reflect on the way their own salvation highlights the wisdom of the way God has done things, the wisdom of God's electing grace, and the way that this further punctures human pride. So have a look at verse 26, where he says, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Right? How you came to Christ. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many of noble birth. Now let's just pause there. Because I guess this was just true of the Corinthian church. As it's been true of many churches down through the ages. Yeah, not many great and powerful and wealthy and wonderful folks among them. It's not a church made up of the rich and, and the wealthy. The intelligentsia, the aristocracy... Now, Paul's not saying there weren't any who belonged to these categories or classes, but certainly there weren't many, as he says, which was a great relief to a lady named the Countess of Huntingdon. Here she comes. Her name was Selina Hastings, in fact, but Countess of Huntingdon was her title. She was saved under the ministry of George Whitfield back in the 1730s. And she was a very wealthy woman, which you could probably guess by the fact that she was a countess. But she liked to say that she owed her salvation to the letter M <laughs> uh, because of this verse, right, that Paul says, not many of you were of noble birth, rather than, thankfully for her, not any of you <laughs> were of noble birth. 
But why is it like this? I mean, why aren't churches full of celebrities and pop stars and film stars and the great and the good? Why isn't that the case? Well, back in the second century, when the church was young, it was the same. In fact, one of the great critics of Christianity back then, a guy named Celsus, uh, he pointed out that churches, he said more often, I quote, he says, were filled with the foolish, the dishonorable, and the stupid, and only slaves and women and children. Right? All the mighty and powerful and wonderful people weren't there. Why so? Well, there's an obvious reason, I think. The more that you possess in this world, the more secure you think you are. And the more secure you think you are, the less able you are to recognize your own spiritual poverty. It's just how it rolls, isn't it? Yeah, it's right why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. But interestingly, Paul is pointing here, wouldn't deny anything of what I just said, but he's pointing here to another reason, in fact, a deeper reason. He's pointing to God's sovereign decision to expose human self-pretension. Right? God actually delights in calling the weak and the powerless. Look at verse 27. Instead, says Paul, God cho- has chosen what is foolish in the world, right, in the eyes of the world, to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Why? So that no one may boast in his presence. See, God knows well our our great temptation and tendency. We are chronic boasters. It's just part of our fallenness. We are we are incorrigible stealers of his glory. And so if we can point to anything in ourselves as being the cause of his kindness, guess what? <laughs> we will. But Paul will have none of it. Because he knows the corruption of the human heart, of his own heart, of your heart, of my heart. And he knows the grace of the gospel. God has saved us, not because of anything in us. But, says verse 30, it is from him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness sanctification and redemption. In other words, friends, our salvation from go to woe is entirely God's doing, right? In every part, in every aspect. It's all from him. Whether it's the necessity to be found righteous in his sight, that's a gift he gives. Whether it's the sanctification required for us to stand in his presence, that's something he brings about. Whether it's our need to be redeemed from sin, the flesh, the devil, and death itself. Well, that is something he alone can do, will do. It is all gift, gift, gift given to us. All of 
grace. And it all comes to us through our faith union with Jesus Christ in whom are all the treasures of riches and mercy and glory. And we are only in Christ because, we heard it before, sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace. In his uh, devotion on this verse, the great English Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, known and loved, I'm sure, by many of you, and rightly so, he put it this way. He said, you have no life before the Lord except as you are in Christ Jesus. Apart from him, you are as the branch that is severed from the vine, dead, withered, useless, obnoxious, rotten. True? True. And so Paul concludes his point in verse 31, spelling out the logical and indeed the biblical consequence. He says, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And when he says as it's written here, he quite means as it's written, as it's written in Jeremiah, because it's from the prophet Jeremiah that he's taking this verse. Let me give you the context in Jeremiah here on the screen if you can see it. This is Jeremiah 9, verses 23-24. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast in their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Right? Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. You know, when somebody does something amazing for you, wonderful for you, gracious and, and kind, it's, it's very poor form, isn't it, to sort of pretend as if you did it for yourself. You know, if, if you're out in the surf and you get into trouble and the lifesaver comes and rescues you and brings you in, and, you know, drags you back to shore, it's pretty ungrateful to then tell people later that really, uh, you know, he didn't do that much, you kind of did most of the work yourself. In fact, you really didn't need him at all. You could have worked your way back in. Uh, what's all that about? It's about pride, isn't it? It's pride. And of course, you know, if you're out there face down in the water, not moving, you need help. Because that's exactly the spiritual state of every fallen human being, right? Dead in our sins, destined for wrath, face down, not moving. But God comes to us in Christ, right? And he drags us back into shore and breathes new life back into us. And he doesn't do it because we're kind of so cute and so cuddly that he can't help himself. Uh, no, no, he does it because of him. He is rich in mercy. It flows out of his character, not a response to ours. And so our salvation, friends, just like that of the Corinthians, is testament to the wisdom of God's electing grace. God's wisdom. God's power, God's mercy. And so let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Now all that brings us to the final step in Paul's argument at this point in his letter as he teases out some of the implications of these things for Christian faith and Christian 
ministry. And the way he does that is by reminding the Christians not now of them and their own calling, but of him and how he discharged his apostolic duties when he was among them. So look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. So it's clear here, and from other parts of his writings, that Paul had zero interest in kind of playing the game of his day and trying to match the rhetorical standards of the professional speakers who worked the circuits, you know, of, well, wherever, the ancient world. Uh, no, he's quite candid about the fact that he was impressive neither as a kind of persona uh, nor as an orator, which, of course, doesn't mean that he was difficult to understand, or that he was a babbler, that he couldn't speak clearly or persuasively, uh, no, no, you only have to read Paul's letters to know that he's a highly intelligent man who can argue very powerfully and persuasively under God. But he's not playing the game of the professionals of his day. Now have a look, I was reading Don Carson's little book uh, called The Cross and Christian Ministry where he has some helpful things to say on this whole score. So he writes here, Doubtless Paul displayed many communicative skills and worked to improve the clarity and potency of his presentation. No doubt he did. What Paul avoided was artificial communication that won the plaudits, that won plaudits for the speaker but distracted from the message. Lazy preachers have no right to appeal to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5 to justify indolence in the study and careless delivery in the pulpit. These verses do not prohibit diligent preparation, passion, clear articulation and persuasive presentation. Rather, they warn against any method that leads people to say, what a marvellous preacher, rather than what a marvellous saviour. Very helpful, very clarifying, because that's entirely Paul's motivation. Uh, the reason he speaks in a plain way rather than kind of in a, a kind of fancy way, the reason he is a straightforward rather than kind of devious presenter uh, is because he doesn't need to rely on his own power and cleverness. He doesn't need that. It actually gets in the way. doesn't need polish, doesn't need manipulation and doesn't want the faith of his hearers to rest in him and his wisdom and his powers. No. But on God's power and God's power alone. Right? So the salvation of the Corinthians, Paul says, you know, Corinthians, it wasn't me that pulled this off. It was God. Not my power. The Spirit's power. Right? And this is God's way. It's through the God-given message of the gospel that the Spirit does his miraculous work of bringing sinners dead in their sins to saving faith and to new life. 
That's how God does it. And that's why Paul resolved to preach nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. As blasphemous as that sounded to some, as scandalous as it sounded to others. As much as it might have been bizarre and bewildering to his contemporaries. That is the message, God's message, through which God's work is done by God's spirit. And so woe betide the gospel minister of today who thinks they know better, and some do, who arrogantly substitutes human wisdom for divine power. How foolish. Now, as we've said, that doesn't mean there's no place for creativity or skill. We ought to work hard. I worked hard on this sermon. Thank you. But if we're relying on our ability and our power and our cleverness and our rhetoric, we're kidding ourselves, fooling ourselves. And we may fool others and make them dependent on us, which make it, makes it even worse. No, our dependence is on him because the power comes from him. So, brothers and sisters, the way of the apostle, which, of course, is none other than the way of Christ, none other than the way of the cross, is to be our way. It has profound implications for the way we minister and ultimately for the way we believe. Let me bring our thoughts into land here. I don't know how familiar you are with the letter, this first letter to the Corinthians. certainly well worth you becoming very familiar with it. It has much to teach us uh, at all times, but certainly in the present hour, I think. But the reason that Paul wrote these words that we've been looking at this morning to this church was because, well, this was a church that was having trouble, you might say, joining the dots. (laughs) taking the gospel to heart, seeing the difference that it needed to make, ought to make, must make. Consequently, it was a church that had its priorities all messed up, back to front. And so there was lots of division, there was lots of, lots of boasting going on, lots of pride on display. These were believers, yes, but not very well living cross-shaped lives and certainly not expressing cross-shaped community together. They needed help. But here's the thing. It's very easy for us to be just like them. In fact, often we're little better than them. Here's the way Carson puts it. He says, We are as foolish as the Corinthians when we make much of what what cannot endure when we promote the values and plans and programs of a world that is passing away as if they bear any deep significance. So misguided a course eloquently betrays how little we know God. For the better we know God, the more we will want all of our existence to revolve around him. And we will see that the only goals and plans that really matter are those that are somehow tied to God himself and to our eternity with him. Or to put that in a simple sentence, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. 
Right? All we have is from him, not from us. Jesus Christ has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. But more than that, the way that Jesus has saved us, right, through his humble, gracious self-sacrifice, that, that way of Christ must determine not only what we believe, but how we live, how we love, how we serve. Right? Right? The way of the cross is to be our way. We are to be those who are hum- humbled by the love of Christ, who live a life of gratitude to God and are determined to give glory to the one to whom all glory belongs. So I'm going to say to you once again, I want you to say it with me. Let the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord. Amen.